With LinkedIn Jobs, we tap into a network of more than a billion professionals to help you find quality professionals quickly and easily for any role you need. Marketing wizards? Found them. Software engineers? Found. That project manager I could never seem to hire? And found. LinkedIn Jobs quickly matches your roles with candidates with the right skills and experience. In fact, 86% of small businesses get a qualified candidate within 24 hours. Post your first job for free and get started at linkedin.com slash spoken. That's linkedin.com slash spoken. Terms and conditions apply. Hello and welcome to episode 7 of the weekly UK True Crime podcast. I'm Adam. Today, this is a bonus episode. It's to celebrate the new year. So let me take this opportunity to wish you all an amazing 2017 and as always, thank you for taking the time to listen. Today, we're going to take you back to England in 1982. It was the year that saw the Smiths formed in Manchester by Johnny Marr and Morrissey. Wow, what a band they were. The birth of Prince William and Italy beating West Germany to win the Football World Cup in Spain. Obviously, England underperformed, but Jerry Armstrong made himself a national hero in Ireland, scoring the winner against Spain. August was a hot and abnormally windy month, which saw Dex's Midnight Runners top of the UK singles chart with Common Eileen. This is still seen as a must-play track by seemingly all of the UK wedding DJs, the weddings I go to that is, and two of the top three albums were from the US drama Fame. Remember Fame? We used to watch it every week religiously as a family. Friday the 13th of August 1982 seemed unremarkable for Ellie and Georgiani. They were a hard-working Greek Cypriot couple who raised their children in a strict but loving home, instilling them with very strong traditional values. They were part of a strong Greek Cypriot community in this part of North London. The couple were working at their shoe repair shop, Nick's Shoe Shop, in Hampstead, North London, as usual. It was the school summer holidays, and their 17-year-old daughter, Yanella, had dropped off their lunch. She was better known as Lucy, after the actress Lucille Ball for her bubbly personality, or as noodles to her school pals. Lucy was a very popular, happy girl and was always willing to help out her parents. In fact, the whole family were very close. Lucy's O-level results were due later that month and two of the career options she was pondering were either working as a beautician or maybe banking. In those long summer holidays, Lucy spent some of her time working at Woolworths as a shop assistant. In her spare time, she watched TV, she read, she enjoyed styling her long hair with an old-fashioned dryer, which drove her dad to distraction, and she took Greek dancing classes. In the early afternoon, Lucy's mum asked her to go back to their home in Belsize Road, it was just a five-minute walk away, to start preparing a leg of lamb for the family supper, and she planned to join her soon after. Lucy headed back, and when she got home, she played the latest Patrice Russian hit, Forget Me Nots, on the record player. Someone knocked on the door at about 2pm, and this was the last time that Lucy was seen alive. When her parents arrived home half an hour later, they found Lucy's jewellery scattered on the stairs. They called out to her, but were met with silence. Upstairs, in their bedroom, they were confronted with a horrific scene. They found Lucy on their bed, half-naked and clearly dead. On seeing this utterly horrendous sight, George threw flower pots out of the window to get attention, yelling, they killed my daughter. Neighbours reported hearing her parents' screams and for days afterwards, they were kept under heavy sedation. Lucy was naked from the waist down, with her skirt pushed up and her chest exposed where her yellow shirt top had been roughly cut open. 
A post-mortem revealed that Lucy had suffocated, probably due to her neck being held in an arm lock. She'd also been raped, bitten and punched. There were marks all over her body. There's no doubt Lucy had suffered an absolutely terrifying ordeal at knife point. The police think that once the murderer had forced his way into the house, he'd chased Lucy up the stairs. He's then likely to have grabbed her ankles as she desperately tried to run away as her broken ankle chain was found on the carpet. Knowing that Lucy's brother's bedroom was the only room in the house with a lock on the door, Lucy unsuccessfully tried to hide there. A footprint at the bottom of the door showed it had been forced open at its hinges. As she frantically tried to evade her attacker, there was evidence of a struggle, with Lucy's bangle and a broken ring recovered as she ran from room to room. Lucy was finally cornered in the bathroom, as when she was found her hair and her clothes were soaking wet. She was then dragged to her parents' room, where she was raped and then murdered. Semen was recovered from her body, but as the science for DNA testing did not exist in 1982, the sample provided no clues. In 1999, a scientist managed to extract an incomplete profile from the bedspread where Lucy was found, and this was matched to a DNA sample from her body. With continuing technological advancements, a near-complete DNA profile was found in 2003, but a search of the DNA database produced no matches. However, crucially, detectives now knew that if in the future a suspect was found, a DNA test would reveal whether he was the person who had killed Lucy. At least in public, the police seemed very confident that they would quickly find the killer. The man heading the inquiry was Detective Chief Superintendent Michael John. He said the following, This is a particularly brutal murder. The man we are looking for is dangerous and must be found. Almost immediately, the police went to Lucy's school, Quinton Kynaston, where the pupils were called in to be questioned. One of Lucy's contemporaries at the school recalled the following, All the boys at QK were suspects and they took all of our fingerprints. The reality is that they were trying to catch out anybody who avoided having them done. They tried to flush them out. The main suspects became the Greek community and people that she knew at school. They put a lot of heavy pressure on everyone who knew her. Police also carried out door-to-door inquiries in the immediate vicinity of her house and spoke to her colleagues at the Woolworths in Finchley Road, where she worked part-time. A mobile police station was set up outside the family home to stop passers-by and police even set up roadblocks to quiz passing motorists. The police were convinced that the murderer was from within the Greek Cypriot community. As there was no sign of a break-in or any forced entry, police worked on the assumption that Lucy must have known her killer. Witnesses reported that a man had been seen talking with Lucy outside her house around an hour before her body was found. One neighbour said that at around 2pm, a man in his early 20s was spotted chatting with Lucy on her doorstep and 20 minutes later, a neighbour heard a scream. Further investigation uncovered that in the three months before the murder, Lucy, her sister Maria and their mum were twice followed by a man close to their home. He was described as being in his early 20s, 5 foot 6 inches tall, with a Mediterranean complexion and black comb-back hair. But further appeals brought no further results. Police constantly referred to this suspect through the investigation and they produced a detailed video fit of the suspect. The appeals from police were issued thick and fast. One read that they were, quote, appealing for anyone who've main seen anything unusual or suspicious between 1.30pm and 3.30pm on the day in question. 
particularly somebody running away, looking dishevelled or covered in blood to come forward. Of course, in the days before social media and 24-7 rolling news, getting the message across was much more difficult, even in the tight-knit community in which Lucy and her family lived. The police carried out a full-scale reconstruction of Lucy's last movements. Her sister, Maria, who was aged 19 and bore a strong resemblance to Lucy, played Lucy's part. This must have been a, a terribly harrowing experience for Maria. Frustratingly for police, despite all this high-profile activity, the information they needed to solve the case just didn't come through. In October that year, hopes were raised again when a man of a similar description to the suspect in Lucy's case, in a bright blue jacket, entered a house in nearby Dartmouth Hill and attempted to rape a 12-year-old girl. Unfortunately, once more this lead came to nothing. A year after her murder, on the day of the anniversary, Lucy's father tried to stimulate further interest by offering a £3,000 reward for information leading to her killer. But again, that information wasn't forthcoming. As you would expect, the killing had a deep impact on pupils at Lucy's school. One of her fellow pupils said that her death became a, a formative event of his teens, one few of his contemporaries could ever have forgotten. Another pupil at Lucy's school recalled the funeral which took place at the Greek Orthodox Church nearby. Half the school was there. If you'd seen the state of her father, you could well have seen why a lot of us never recovered from it. He wailed in a way that I've never heard since. They had to drag him in and out of the church. He was a broken man. Tragically, Lucy's father died a few years later. He never recovered from losing his daughter. Although he died of a brain tumour, the family firmly believed this was brought on by the stress caused by the death of Lucy. His son Rick later said, My father developed a brain tumour five years after Lucy's murder and died shortly after. I truly believe this was a direct result of his daughter's murder. My father was a broken man from that fateful day and was unable to live a moment longer. Lucy's father was buried next to his daughter in a North London cemetery. While he was alive, George was determined that the case would never be forgotten. He even wrote to Margaret Thatcher, the Prime Minister at the time, and the Commissioner at Scotland Yard, begging that the investigation was never closed. True to his wishes, the investigation remained firmly open, and more than a thousand witness statements were taken in the case, and these were periodically reviewed. A small number of arrests were made, but these were standard routine elimination, rather than any significant needs. Fearing the killer had left the UK, detectives travelled as far as Cyprus and even Australia to follow up on information received in their quest to catch the killer. In 2001, Scotland Yard made another huge appeal. Detectives based at the Serious Crime Group increased the reward to £10,000 and spoke of their hope that new forensic techniques could be used to find a match for the DNA profile left in her bedroom. In 2013, Detective Inspector Judy Willets took responsibility for the case. Since 2001, there have been numerous articles written about the investigation and many further appeals, but the police were still no closer to catching the killer. With the lack of leads and no pieces of luck to kickstart the investigation, she began to fear that the murderer was either dead or it was such a long time ago that he had to be abroad and might never be found. Of course, back in 1982, there were not the usual tools that police use today to give them leads. There was no CCTV, no mobile phone records or social media. Willits reverted to old-fashioned detective techniques. 
One rumour doing the rounds was that a shadowy man known only as Tony the Barber had murdered Lucy. And Willett searched old copies of the Yellow Pages in the British Library, just trying to find any trace of him. Do you remember the Arthur Cole drama comedy Minder? It, it was huge when I was growing up. Willett's even searched through archived episodes of Minder to check out potential London locations where criminals could be found. In January 2016, Willits was at the theatre with her mum when she received a text from her boss. She couldn't quite believe what she was being told. There had been a successful match from the DNA database. She said, I was sitting there with my mum and I just couldn't wait for the interval. It was a really good show, but I just wanted to get outside. I was just thinking, this, this can't be right. It must be a mistake. It was no mistake. On the 30th of December 2015... 56-year-old James Warnock from Camden, North West London, was arrested for possessing indecent images of children. He was in fact caught as part of a police sting, sharing indecent pictures of children as young as just one year old with an undercover officer online. At the time of his arrest, Warnock was living in Harrington Street in Camden, North London, less than two miles from where Lucy was murdered. The circumstances leading to his arrest were complicated. In January 2013, Detectives began an investigation after a suspect, now known to be Warnock, shared indecent images of children with an undercover police officer. Police knew that the suspect was operating near Euston Road in North London and was connecting to the internet via an unregistered smartphone. Police arrived in Warnock's Road, Harrington Street, in January 2015. A shopkeeper at the food and wine store on a nearby road was able to tell officers that a man called Jimmy, who lives in Harrington House, recently came in to top up a mobile telephone. Based on this, the police then searched Warnock's flat, but he denied any involvement and they found no evidence. He said he'd recently purchased a laptop from Argos, but having brought it, he'd taken it to Camden, where he'd given it to the Salvation Army as a Christmas present. The police were not able to proceed further. However, this wasn't the end of the matter, and later in 2015, police found the same suspect was active again, and this time an undercover officer from Greater Manchester Police made contact. After sharing more indecent images, police carried out a detailed search of Warnock's flat. This time they were successful. Officers found a key hidden in a light fitting outside his front door. That key fitted a locker to a store cupboard in the building where police found his laptop. Faced with this overwhelming evidence, Warnock admitted sharing the images using the laptop, but said he would get... Quote, so guilty, I'd wipe it. He told detectives, I would never ever in a million years touch someone, but online it's like fantasy, it's not real. After admitting his guilt, he told police, I'm just glad it's out in the open now. I'm glad it's the end of the story. But it was just the beginning of the story for Warnock. When Warnock was arrested, detectives took a routine swab test, as they would do for anyone who's arrested. A week later, the results returned a match on the National DNA database with samples taken from semen on the bedspread at the scene of Lucy's murder nearly 34 years ago. The chances of the semen belonging to someone other than Warnock was estimated at one in a billion. Now this was the piece of luck that had so far evaded detectives and it looked like they'd finally caught the man who'd murdered Lucy. But after all these years, it's no surprise that apprehending Warnock wasn't quite as straightforward as they'd hoped. Far from it. When the police arrived at his Regent's Park flat, they found that Warnock was no longer there. Officers broke down the door and they found food in his fridge was with a use-by date of December 2015. 
In breach of his bail conditions, he'd failed to return home after his arrest. Surely the murderer wasn't going to slip away once more after they'd got so close. A few days later, his car was picked up in nearby Finchley by an automatic number plate recognition camera. This sent an immediate alert to D.I. Willits and her team. They raced to the area, but were again unable to track down Warnock and were just about to call it a day. Just before they did, D.I. Willett recalls, We were about to go back to the Nick, and I was in the back of the car, but the guy in front said, Have a look around here, Governor, because there's a lot of seedy hotels. I looked out of the window, and Warnock's car was parked down this side street. Warnock was finally arrested on that evening, the 12th of January. When officers tracked down 56-year-old Warnock, they found the heavily tattooed, balding and portly defendant awaiting their arrival, drinking beer in his underpants in the bedroom of the seedy budget hotel. Willett said, He was just sitting in this tiny little room in his pants drinking beer. When he was arrested, he just said, Yeah, okay, that's it. He wasn't surprised at all. He must have known we would be coming for him. It's the science that has solved this one for us. During interviews, detectives commented that even now, Warnock came across as cocky, a bit of a Jack the Lad, and he was a very confident liar. He always had an answer, and they felt that he liked to think he could talk his way out of any situation. It seems that back in 1982, the police were very accurate with the description that was initially provided of the prime suspect in Lucy's murder. Warnock would have been 22 at the time of the attack. His face was very similar to the EFIT compiled by officers, and he was 5 foot 6 tall with black combed hair. Freelance Tyler Warnock had married Lynn Abrahams a year before he killed Lucy. At that time, he lived just a short walk, about half a mile, away from Lucy's home. At the time of her murder, he'd been working as a tiler, converting large houses into flats close to Lucy's house. Shortly afterwards, he moved a little further away with his wife. They had two children in 1983-1986, before divorcing in 2003. Astonishingly, in the time since the murder, Warnock had always remained in the local area. And despite remaining so close for all these years, Warnock managed to avoid arousing suspicion and he was not once interviewed during the investigation. On the 14th of January 2016, Warnock was charged with the rape and murder of Lucy. Warnock's trial began on 22nd of June 2016 at the Old Bailey, where he pleaded not guilty to rape and to murder. Now, when this trial was reported in the media, a lot of emphasis was placed on Warnock's description of how he looked in 1982. In his own words, he said, How can I put it? Uh, John Travolta. People who knew him at the time said he gave the impression of being a cocky ladies' man, with his hair styled at a decent salon and meticulously blow-dried, so he could attempt to look like Travolta, who at the time was best known for his huge roles in Greece and then Saturday Night Fever. At his trial... Any similarities to Travolta were long gone. He appeared in court in a blue blazer and a white shirt, with black receding hair, a thin moustache and tattoos on both his arms and on his hand. Throughout the hearing, he was taking notes on the case. At no time did he glance at Lucy's family, but he did occasionally look up at the public gallery. Warnock didn't deny knowing Lucy. He told detectives he first noticed her when he took a pair of damaged Dr Martin boots to be repaired at her father's shop. He said they started to meet up as friends when they would go for walks and sit on park benches to discuss their lives. Over time, their relationship deepened 
and Warnock claimed he had sex with her on about 10 occasions. This even took place at her family home, he alleged, as they couldn't go back to his flat on the 17th floor of a tower block half a mile away in case his wife Lynn found out. By pleading not guilty and maintaining this defence that he was having a relationship with Lucy, this meant that Lucy's brothers and sister relived the nightmare of her violent death in court while her 86-year-old mother was among those to give evidence. The family wept and hung their heads as he told jurors of sexual encounters, saying, It was always nice. It was not, you know, vigorous or anything. We didn't go mad. It was very quick. It was gentle. Warnock's legal team suggested that Lucy had brought home an older man for sexual encounters as a way of rebelling against her traditional Greek Cypriot upbringing. Warnock said that his relationship with Lucy ended abruptly and he never saw her again, and he had no idea she'd been killed, despite the extensive media coverage and police activity. When asked how he didn't know about her murder from the newspapers and TV, he said that he only read the sports pages, and there were only four TV channels at the time. Lucy's sister Maria, who was 20 at the time of her sister's death, strongly denied Warnock's claims of a sexual relationship between the two. She told the court that she and Lucy were best friends and there were no secrets between them. Of their traditional upbringing, which meant they were not allowed to have boyfriends and would never in a million years bring a man to their parents' home, Maria had told the court, We had a very strict upbringing. We accepted that. We accepted that this was our tradition, our culture, and we lived our lives accordingly. This testimony was supported by detailed medical evidence that revealed that Warnock was lying and Lucy had in fact been a virgin when she was raped. The jury were read transcripts of the police interview in which Warnock was confronted with an image of the scene that Lucy's parents discovered when they found her. Warnock replied, Ah, bleed in hell, I don't have to look at that. Detective Constable Esther Sinclair, who led the jury through the interviews in the witness box, responded, I think you've seen it before, Jim. This is the reality of what happened. Warnock replied, No, 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 it's not me. I never done that. The jury didn't believe the ridiculous tale spun by Warnock and took just over two hours to find James Warnock guilty of the rape and murder of Lucy. Her family broke down in tears as Judge Nicholas Hillard QC sentenced him to at least 25 years in prison for murder and 20 years for rape. He also received a range of terms of between four years and five months after admitting six counts of distributing indecent images in 2013, all to run concurrently. Warnock showed no emotion, nodding, but swiftly walking out of the dock. This sentence means that Warnock is likely to die in jail. Judge Hilliard QC said that Lucy had endured a terrible ordeal at knife point and was killed in a way that was cruel, brutal and without mercy. He was satisfied there was a degree of premeditation and planning before the murder and it was not a spur-of-the-moment crime. He added, It is impossible to understand how one human being could do such things to another. And in the process, you visited misery beyond measure on those whom Yudala was and is so dear, and which will never leave them. Paying tribute to her, the judge told Warnock that her brightness of her spirit meant that she would be remembered as a happy and hopeful teenager and not defined by the awful things you did to her. The judge also praised her father for insisting on regular meetings with police to keep the case alive. And he also highlighted the role of local media, saying... The Camden New Journal and the Hampstead and Highgate Express are great examples of local papers working for their communities. Lucy's brothers and sister said the loss of their sister had left the family saturated by grief. 
her brother Rick said, The magnitude and horror of what happened that day is indescribable. He said the family had been scarred for life by what happened, and their soul was ripped prematurely from us all. I have no doubt that my sister's murderer will one day be passing through the gates of hell. Warnock's lies which sullied the honour of his sister had rubbed salt into the wound, he added. We now pray that we can move forward with the rest of our lives, having some peace in knowing that her killer has been brought to justice and that a very dangerous man is no longer a threat to anyone else. As we have heard, this is an awful case. It's impossible not to be touched by the premature death of Lucy's father, George, who was so overcome with grief before being laid to rest next to his beloved daughter. And also the strength of Lucy's mother and the rest of her family whose suffering we can only imagine. I can't help thinking that it just seems terribly unfair that Warnock was allowed to live so much of his life 34 years after the murder took place, in a relatively normal way, and it's only at age 56 that he was brought to justice. He was able to marry, have children, and enjoy all the pleasures of adult life, all those things he took from Lucy. You also have to wonder just how many other victims... There are. Surely he must have carried out other violent or sexual crimes in the intervening years. Most of all, it's sad beyond belief that a beautiful person like Lucy lost her life just because a lowlife like Warnock had spotted her while she was doing nothing wrong, just living her everyday life. Thanks again for listening to our weekly podcast. Please head to our site at uktruecrime.com and sign up to our newsletter to be the first to hear about some really exciting developments in 2017. Also, please do make contact on social media or even leave us a review on iTunes. Once more, Happy New Year and we'll speak again next week. Bye for now.